Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwinunu. We have a special breaking news edition of the pod for you today, breaking down the big Supreme Court decision on Thursday, overturning affirmative action after nearly 50 years. The highest court in the land has declared that race cannot be a factor in college and university admissions. It's now going to force higher education to look for new ways to achieve diverse student bodies. I did an Instagram live interview with Sharon McMahon of the government education page. Sharon says so. She's a Supreme Court watcher. We often have her on around big cases. I know many of you follow her accounts as well. Over the course of this conversation, we answered your questions, broke down the decision, the dramatic opinions, some back and forth. It got personal in these opinions between the justices calling each other out. We talk about also what this means for colleges, employment, And later on in the conversation, we talked about a couple other big cases regarding LGBT rights in the First Amendment and student loans. Will the Biden forgiveness plan be found constitutional? We will know in the next day or two. We also talked about all the controversy related to ethics and the Supreme Court. Before we get started here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to episodes like this one and extra content on our members-only Instagram account and members-only podcast page. By joining Mo News Premium, it's a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, independent journalism, and the added plus, of course, is the extra content and the more frequent Q&As. You can get access to it for just $7 a month. There's also a special deal right now for an annual package. You can check it all out over at mo.news slash premium. All right, with that, here's our conversation. There she is. Hey. How are you? Good. How are you? How do you get, I kind of imagine you like Rocky Balboa prepping for this week, Sharon. Are you running? Are you drinking raw eggs? Yes. I start getting up hours ahead of time, uh, you know, like weeks in advance to be like, okay, gotta go. That's right. That's exactly you're right. chasing chickens in the backyard yep. and you're like, That's I got correct. it. Yep. yep. Slit, you know, like carbo loading is what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, carbo loading. Um, we're here to talk affirmative action, a case that we've been anticipating. Um, obviously, they took the case. They had the North Carolina case, the Harvard case. Uh, we know the main headline that uh, they've uh, overturned race-based admissions and affirmative action, which has been something the law of the land for 45 years. Would love to start with just kind of your big takeaways. And I should ask, have you been able to get through all 230 pages of the multiple decisions? Yeah, it it took me a little while, but I will say it got real interesting there. It got real interesting where you're like, no way. You know what I mean? Because one of the reasons it got real interesting is the amount of back and forth that was happening in uh, the footnotes, in the dissents, where people like, um, you know, Justice Thomas and Justice Jackson were really kind of going at each other. It felt like a rap battle. It felt like Eminem. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was really... They were, they were not even like using their normal language of like, I respectfully dissent. They were like, I strongly dissent. You know, like they were not amused with each other. Uh, I, I doubt they went home at the end of the day feeling good about their friendship. Well, I was gonna say, that's something that people, many people don't know is they assume based on their differences in interpreting the law that these people must hate each other, but it's a pretty collegial place typically. It definitely is. They mostly like each other. They mostly get along. When people have suggested that they don't, they say things like, that is not real. Don't believe that. So mostly, yes, they do. But clearly today, no, they don't. At least right. I posted a few of the quotes here, you know, like 
Sotomayor goes off on Thomas, oh, like yeah. citing no evidence, yeah. Justice Thomas said blank. Justice oh, yeah. Thomas belies reality, she says at one point. Yeah. Uh, Justice Thomas uses, offers a multitude of arguments, dot, 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 none of them have any merit. Yes, yes, uh, and it, absolutely. And Ketanji Brown Jackson says, um, some, she says that they, uh, they, the bottom line conclusion that racial diversity in higher education is only worth potentially preserving insofar as it might be needed to prepare black Americans for success in the bunker and not in the boardroom. And that is a, that's a, like a callback to this idea that Roberts left uh, affirmative action in place for military academies. Like it's fine in the bunker, but it's not for the boardroom. So let's, let's talk about that majority opinion. It's a 6-3 uh, opinion. The Chief Justice has chosen to written it, obviously understanding the history here. He took it upon himself. What are the, your big takeaways, both um, you know, surprises and the things that, okay, we expected that to happen? Yeah, I think one of the big, I mean, the big takeaways are not, first of all, not surprising that this is the conclusion. Definitely saw it coming. Definitely saw it coming in terms of the, um, you know, the oral arguments. But one of the things that I really noted was how over and over and over again, everyone who was in the majority, whether they were writing in the majority opinion or writing a concurring opinion, they kept talking about how affirmative action was meant to end. It was supposed to end after a specific period of time, 25 years. Um, and they kept bringing that up again. Like at some point it has to end. And they have decided that the point of it ending is today. It's now. Um, but that was, I thought, I found very interesting that they, that was really one of the bases that they were resting some of their arguments on that needs to be time delimited and that time is now. Yeah, one of the specific things that's come up is the 2003 court decision, Sandra Day O'Connor at the time, laying out, in 25 years, we're not going to need this, mm -hmm. which, by the way, would have taken us to 2028. Right. So effectively, they went with 20 years as opposed to 25 mm -hmm, years. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. So the time thing was was interesting. It was not a surprise that the court's majority felt that the Equal Protection Clause of the uh, Constitution does not permit for any racial preferences to be given uh, in the sense of admissions. That was not a surprise. Uh, and that's certainly another one of the big arguments that they make. One of the things I found interesting, though, in Gorsuch's um, concurring opinion is that, of course, if you have been reading Gorsuch's opinions and dissents for any period of time, you will know this about him, that he loves history and he loves telling long stories about history. Sometimes they're very interesting. Like he wrote an opinion about the NCAA and basketball once that was like, gave like a 20 page history on NCAA basketball. Um, but in this case, he talked about these ideas of racial classifications of like uh, Hispanic, African-American, white. And he posed the question, where do these categories come from? Is it based in anthropology? Is it based in history? Like, where do these categories come from? And he, he attempts to sort of sort out where these categories come from. And he finally arrives at the conclusion that they come from bureaucrats, that the racial classifications come from bureaucrats is what says. And so consequently, because they come from bureaucrats, we should not be adopting them as the standard for how we determine who's admitted in co into colleges and who's not. One thing that's come up is that universities are unique in how they're able to use race for admissions. 
in a way that things are much more restrictive for employers. And mm -hmm. one of the questions that's come up here is the ramifications of this decision beyond um, higher education. Mm -hmm. But it, it's, it, there's been sort of this, um, um, I, I would say, you know, this special ability for universities to be able to use this, whereas the rest of society doesn't, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, w of course, there's a variety of reasons for that. One is the very, very long-standing uh, legal tradition of things like segregation when it comes to education, right? Uh, so that's one of the foundations. Of why can schools do this, but a uh, place of employment cannot? Uh, the other one is that people have made the case that schools benefit from a diverse student body and that the benefit that is derived from a diverse student body uh, cannot be cannot be uh, obtained any other way um you also have a very different view uh, you know a very different mindset about school admissions versus em employment and a bunch of people have asked me about this too of like will this apply to my business Will I be able to, will I be required to, or will I be able to consider this in my business? And in so far as this decision is written, it does not apply to businesses. It applies to schools that accept federal funding. And that's most schools, both private and public, that's most schools. If they accept student loans uh, from the federal government, then they accept federal funding. But it doesn't apply to say your businesses, uh, you know, paving roads or, you know, a shop in a ice cream store. So, yeah, they made a point of taking both the North Carolina case and the Harvard case, a private institution and a public institution yes. here. Yes. Yeah, exactly. To say that this is not only for one type of institution or another. Um, and, you know, one of the things that this is something I'm getting asked about a lot is there seem to be a lot of people who are under the impression that schools have up until now been using a quota system. And that is not the case. Quotas are not legal. You cannot say we will accept 100 African-Americans, 100 whites, and 100 Asians. You're not allowed to use quotas. So no, this is not overturning any kind of a quota. And also people have been saying um, that they've been seeing on the news or they saw some commentator say it on TV that um, race is the only thing that is getting students admitted into colleges. Um, that is also not the case. It is what's considered a plus factor. A plus factor being like if you have, let's say a student is assigned 20 or you get 20 possible points, um, one point might be given for your incredible community service. Right. One point might be given for your athleticism. One point might be given for the fact that your parents went to school here. Um, one point in some schools might be given to your parents' current financial status, meaning if your parents are rich, you get a plus factor because those parents are then able to pay full price for the tuition and they are seen as better able to support the school financially in the future. Uh, and one of the plus factors for some schools, approximately 40% of schools nationwide, uh, if you incorporate both private and public, one plus factor has been the consideration of race. Right, so that number is important that of the more than a thousand institutions of higher learning in this country, about 40% have been using race as yes. a factor. As a plus factor, not as a sole factor. A sole factor is not, has not been legal for a long time, and neither are quotas, but as one of a number of plus factors, yes.
Notably going into this, nine states actually had already banned the use of race-based admissions, correct? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. California being one of the biggest, of course. Um, California is a very large uh, university system, and so the uh, effects have been uh, measurable and noticeable. And one of the things that California has found is that once they have they eliminated race as a plus factor, they found that um, race-based diversity has decreased yeah. over time. And so one of the challenges that universities are going to have moving forward is how do we ensure diverse student bodies if we cannot say, check a box, tell us what your race is? Right. I was looking at the California numbers uh, since 1996 when Californians, by the way, voted as a proposition to uh, ban the use of affirmative action. Black and Hispanic enrollment has fallen 40 percent. And based on the most recent numbers, uh, this is, again, among public institutions in California, uh, 3% of the student population is black, 20% Hispanic, which is about half the statewide population. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So you do see, uh, a, you know, a great indication of what is likely to happen at universities around the country, at these 40% of universities that use a race as a plus factor. It is going to take a few years, though. It's not going to be like tomorrow uh, we see a huge difference. It's going to take a few years uh, because the incoming class has already been admitted and uh, you have to, there's going to be sort of like a, a phase out uh, effect, so to speak. So you won't really start seeing the measurable effects um, for a couple of years. Yeah, the president of Columbia University is quoted in the Wall Street Journal as saying that it's going to take about, even though this was expected, this is still sort of a shock, you know, beyond a shock to the system, about five years, he believes. Mm -hmm until uh, they figure that out. We have a question here and, you know, wondering in your reading whether this could impact it. Uh, somebody asked, historically schools balance gender regardless of the fact females perform better in high school. Does this open the door to a lawsuit against accepting similar gender rates? Mm -hmm. This is not, this decision does not touch gender. People have asked me that a bunch of times too. Uh, can, does this mean that women will, you know, impact the rates of, of uh, college acceptances for women? It's not to say that somebody can't uh, bring a new lawsuit, and it's not to say that the Supreme Court would even uh, decline to hear it. I wouldn't be surprised if there were um, lawsuits in the future uh, regarding things like Title IX. But uh, this case does not touch uh, the gender of an applicant, no matter what their race is. Do we know now if you have a, a college application starting next year, are they even allowed to ask your race and just not consider it? Mm. Um, or is it completely off? Like, do we anticipate colleges will interpret this to mean we can't even put Don't race as a category? Yeah. yeah, good question. I don't know the answer to that yet because that is going to be uh, probably another thing that we'll see litigated, right? Is whether we can even have it on, the, on your application. Because Roberts does say that you can consider race um, using other means, like, for example, by writing an essay that talks about how your race has impacted your character or your race has impacted an obstacle that you have overcome. So they didn't say uh, this must be a completely race blind process. No one is allowed to consider any aspect of race. But neither did they say uh, you absolutely cannot put it on a checklist and, and have colleges ask what your race is. So yeah. I would imagine my prediction is it will still be legal to have to be a checkbox. It just won't be able to be a plus factor. Right, because you can imagine universities want to be able to just 
without that, they don't even know what the makeup of their student body is just for statistical purposes. Right. Um, the, you, you mentioned there, uh, Robert's talking about an essay, and, and I'm interested to dive into the exceptions, if you will, or the guidebook that they try to give, because that's also subject of debate. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, Roberts takes a shot at the dissent being like, FYI, the dissent is going to tell you to do certain things, colleges, but here at the court, dissents are, you shouldn't follow them mm -hmm. if you're looking to follow the law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it, it was, this was very, very noticeable in this decision, how often the people in the majority referred to the people in the minority. They clearly strongly disagreed with each other. The, the default is kind of uh, to ignore the dissent or to maybe make a little reference like people in the dissent might try to tell you X, but you know, that they're not right and here's why. The fact that there was so much back and forth of like, Jackson said this, disregard it. Sotomayor said this, you should disregard it. Of course, Jackson's perspective uh, is that uh, race doesn't go away because you remove it from a college admission, uh, you know, plus factor. That you might say that we're not considering it, but it doesn't mean that it's not considered in real life. Um, she lays out a very, very long historical, uh, you know, analysis of how the United States has historically discriminated against people of minority ethnicities um, and why we can't, in her opinion, just say, like, it's forgotten and expect that to actually mean anything in the real world. Um, obviously, Roberts disagrees with that opinion. Roberts disagrees. And you know who really disagrees with it? Clarence. Oh, man. Oh, man. He disagrees with it so hard. Right. It was a very so interesting. Hard. It was a very interesting back and forth between the yeah. two black justices. Yeah, yeah. totally. Uh, and you can tell that um, they're on polar opposites uh, sides of this issue. And the fact that they are both uh, African-Americans on the court, they felt uh, it, it appeared as if they felt that they were speaking for their race uh, as the you know, Katanji Brown Jackson is saying, this is how it has been for us for 400 years. Um, and Clarence Thomas had some very, very, very pointed language aimed directly at Jackson, where he was like, Jackson over here would have you to believe that everybody is just a victim, that everybody is nothing more than their race. That's, he said something to that effect, that you're nothing more than the color of your skin. That's what Jackson would have you believe. So it is a, a very, very, if I were a law school professor, this of course would be a case that I would teach, not just because it is a landmark case, but also uh, because it so clearly illustrates the ideological bents of these two justices, of the sort of more left wing of the court and of the far right wing of the court. This illustrates it like nothing else. And it's fascinating because it reflects the political discussion we're seeing. I mean, there was a back and forth recently between Tim Scott, who's running for president, and Barack Obama. Yep. Um, and, you know, this like Tim Scott saying, like, the liberals will have you believe we're nothing more than our race, but we can. Yep. And you, you see this reflected in, in the decision here. As far as the exceptions, um, so there's the, you can use it in a college essay. Um, yep. There's also the military exception. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this is the thing about the military exception is that um, Justice Roberts puts it in a footnote, a small footnote, with almost no explanation. 
And the and one of the things that's noteworthy about this is that the United States, Elizabeth Kologar, who is the um, the Solicitor General of the United States, she's the lawyer that represents the United States before the uh, Supreme Court, and um, she says, you know, she argued that he uh, or that the military has to be able to consider race because it affects military preparedness that the military has to be able to consider it for matters of national security. And so she was saying, this is gonna affect military academies who have to be able to consider race for matters of national security. Um, here's, what, here's all John Roberts has to say on, on this topic. He says, no military academy is, party, is a party to these cases, however, and none of the courts below address the propriety of race-based admission systems in that context. This opinion also does not address the issue in light of the potentially distinct interests that military academies may present. That's all he says. He doesn't say, and we think affirmative action is fine for military academies. He's like, we don't, we're not touching it. It's fine, you know, like essentially leaving the current uh, positions of military academies in place. And, and both Sotomayor and Jackson picked up on this uh, one paragraph. It's on page 30, if anybody wants to read it. Um, picked up on this one paragraph, and they were like, so obviously race being a factor is fine in some circumstances. It's fine in some circumstances, but just not this one. And that was that refers exactly to what I was saying earlier, but where Jackson is like, so you're fine with preparing uh, Black Americans for the bunker, but not the boardroom. You leave it in place in the military, but not in institutions of higher learning. Yeah, Sotomayor also, when she's doing her various shots at Thomas, says, you know, Thomas, like, you're okay with these exceptions, um, mm -hmm. except here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it, but I think one of the challenges here is that Roberts doesn't explain himself and he doesn't, he's just saying like, we're not touching that aspect. Um, the military is another issue. Like we're not, we're not getting into that today. That's essentially what he's saying. And, and when we're talking about this decision, just for context for people. So there's the majority decision yep. and then Thomas wrote a concurring, yep. you know, with his take. Kavanaugh wrote a concurring with his take. Gorsuch wrote a concurring with his take. Yep. And then there's the Sotomayor dissent. Uh, and then there's the Jackson dissent. How yes. rare is it to have six different yeah. opinions written on one case? It's very, not, not common at all. Uh, not common at all. You do sometimes see more than, you know, you might see a couple of concurring opinions, um, but to have multiple dissents uh, and four majority opinions, uh, that says a lot about how strongly the justices feel about this topic that they were not, uh, they couldn't just say, you know what, that's good enough, let's go with that. You know what I mean? Like they had to get their extra takes in there. Gorsuch had to get his extra take about the race-based categories coming from bureaucrats. You know, Kavanaugh had to get his uh, extra takes about why, why this matters and why there is no way to measure the benefit students. Like they all had to get their little extra like, yeah, but also this kind of in there. Um, another thing people have brought up, historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, um, how, how does this affect them, if at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so HBCUs, if they are using race as a plus factor, this will impact them. 
if they are not using race as a plus factor and the student body is uh, largely black because of its designation as an HBCU, then it's not going to affect it. I don't know the precise number of HBCUs that use race as a plus factor. I did see one HBCU president say that this is this is going to require us, uh, you know, essentially to do more to make sure that our that students of color are well represented in these universities. So it only affects them if they're using race as a plus factor in admission. So California is one of these states that has had affirmative action ban for a while. Uh, and so a question has come up being like, all right, so how else are these states, even institutions in these states, attempting to achieve a diverse student body? And I know uh, income, zip code, there's a few. You, I, do you care to kind of lay out some of the things that they've been attempting to do to try to get at diversity? Mm -hmm. It's a, it is a challenge. Um, and one of the things that they talk about in this decision is that admissions is a zero-sum game. They reference that phrase over and over and over. It's a zero-sum game. Meaning, it, they say, in order to advantage one person, you have to disadvantage another person. That's what they mean by that. And the justices in the dissent are like, that is, uh, you're looking at it the wrong way. That's not what we're saying. Uh, but Thomas in particular was like, the math ain't mathing. I mean, he was yeah, like- Yeah, no, he's, but, he's like, to let someone yeah. in, like you have to, that means that someone else cannot come in. So mm -hmm. yeah. 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 He he literally was like, your math doesn't make sense. Yeah. That's essentially what he was saying. Your math is not good. Um, so in places like California, when you're using things like zip code, that of course, um, here's one of the big challenges with using socioeconomic status. Um, first of all, it does not ensure diversity. You can have um, socioeconomic uh, people at low socioeconomic status of any of any race. Secondly, um, it ignores the idea that uh, students of color uh, are not all poor. Right, like that is a stereotype right. that students of color tend to be poor. It doesn't mean that statistically that's not supported statistically across the board, but it is nevertheless a stereotype. The, and, 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 and I was going to say this has been one of the counters from uh, the the plaintiffs here is that you know you might have diversity at Harvard, but it's not socioeconomic yeah. diversity. That's right. Yes, that is exactly what one of them uh, said. That uh, and again, people may agree or disagree with this. But a, they're saying that an African-American student um, admitted to Harvard likely has more in common with other white students admitted to Harvard uh, than, uh, than, than you might think. Basically saying that you're still way more likely to get in if you're rich uh, and not of low socioeconomic status. So the stereotype issue, though, is something that they bring up in this opinion that uh, we cannot have admissions policies that are based in stereotypes. And uh, Roberts brings this up over and over, that stereotypes are, uh, the current policies cannot ensure there's no stereotypes and consequently they uh, violate the constitution. Um, and they, the justices in the dissent countered that and they were saying the idea that you think that all black students are poor is a stereotype. Uh, the, don't try to say, oh, negative stereotypes, when in reality, what you're doing is stereotyping by saying these things. So the stereotype aspect is something that if you are trying to consider other factors like zip code, 
Um, you can make an argument that you are more deeply entrenching stereotypes by using only socioeconomic status as a factor. Um, we have a follow-up. How does the military need to consider it for national security? I, I know you said Robertson go too detailed on this, but do we have any sort of background on the military's argument here for continuing to... The first part of what you said is why does the military need diversity? Is that what you're asking? Uh, or, 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 or why does the military argue that it needs to consider race? Mm. Mm. Well, because for what, I mean, there's a variety of reasons, uh, but one of them is that uh, group think is dangerous for national security. That people who all think the same way, if you bring a table of white generals to the, you know, like everyone is white, uh, they are going to have come from very, very similar backgrounds in life. Uh, they have been career military men. They have a much more likely to view the world with a very similar lens. Um, and that can cause holes in people's thinking when you have everyone at the table with a very similar ideological frame of reference, uh, it makes you uh, ignore huge blind spots where you're like, we're not considering this thing over here. So there's more reasons uh, in terms of national security, uh, you know, that again, I'm not a national security military expert, but I know that that is one of them from the experts I've spoken to, that the avoidance of groupthink promotes national, promotes national security and in order to avoid that you need diversity group thing was discussed extensively when people were doing kind of the post-mortems on vietnam mm -hmm. and uh, the lack of diversity in thinking as we continue to escalate 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 mm -hmm. despite yep. uh, evidence to the contrary we have people in the comments saying well if group think is bad for the military what about daily life and educational opportunities <laughs> you know I, and i know that that came up in the arguments here is the ramifications of diversity in higher ed to society writ large. Mm -hmm. To what extent was, was that addressed? The connection, the connective tissue between ensuring diverse student bodies and America? Mm. I mean, of course, the, in the dissent, they brought this up over and over and over and over. They hammered this issue of the benefits of a diverse student body, not just to the student body as a whole, but also to the students who are themselves members of that historically marginalized community. Um, they hammered it over and over. In the majority opinion, uh, their perspective is that, the, that attaining diversity, even if those are commendable goals, Robert says, even if it's a commendable goal that we consider a diverse group of perspectives, even if it's a commendable goal that people benefit from uh, being around people who didn't grow up like them, that those commendable goals still do not rise to what they call strict scrutiny. Uh, they still do not overcome the legal challenges before them, meaning even if those are commendable goals, you still can't violate the Constitution. That's what they're saying. Maybe it's commendable, but it's also not measurable. A judge can't look at it. A judge cannot provide any oversight, they're saying. Can't provide oversight and be like, I can see how you're meeting your stated objectives, you know, continue. They're saying these stated objectives are nebulous. How is a judge supposed to determine if benefiting from diverse viewpoints is happening? Um, so that is really one of the big ideological differences between these two sides. One is like, it might be commendable, but we can't consider it. And the other side is saying, we have to consider it. it you're saying we shouldn't consider it is a big problem. That's what they're saying in the dissent.
Yeah, I mean, it's, it, at the at issue here is the 14th Amendment, right? The Equal Protection Clause. And, and there's a lot of discussion of what the intentionality was behind that mm -hmm. and whether, and, and so I'd love just kind of historical perspective here. The 14th Amendment, what, what was, to the extent that we know, the intention of it and to what extent did the people who put it together see it as a lever uh, to be used to uh, go from equality to equity? which I guess is, is, you know, is sort of where we're at now in 2023. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think there's much of an argument to be made that the framers of the 14th Amendment intended equity. I don't think there's much of an argument to be made. You can make the argument today that that should be the goal, that we should uh, look at the impacts of the systems and processes that have brought us to this place where we continue to, despite all of these efforts, not have equity. Um, and make an argument that we should continue to try to work towards that. But I don't think there's a, really a strong uh, argument to be made that they were like, we should have equity. Um, instead, if you think about these post-Civil War amendments, um, this was a way of trying to bring the South back into life, a, a, a way of trying to say, whatever y'all are trying to do down there, uh, we're going to make it so you have to stop. So. I mean, we can go into the whole history of reconstruction another day because it's long. That's a whole. That's a whole separate live, and I imagine <laughs> you've done some podcasts on that. Yes. Yeah, um, but you know, they do argue like, what is the purpose of the Fourteenth Amendment? And Sonia Sotomayor, her perspective is that the Constitution is meant to provide racial equality. Right. That's what she says. It's meant to ensure racial equality, she says. Uh, and in the majority opinion, their perspective is that the 14th Amendment protects you from discrimination on the basis of race, that there is this uh, equality in the sense of like, we won't uh, discriminate against you on the it's basis. It's basically, it, it should, the 14th Amendment should ensure that it's not a minus, your race is not a minus against mm -hmm, you, mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't quite uh, defend making race a plus factor. But yes, that's so, correct. Okay. Yes, and so to me, we're saying the 14th Amendment is meant to ensure that we have racial equality. And she's saying this decision doesn't ensure that. This decision does not ensure racial equality. In fact, it will more deeply entrench it, she says. One thing that came up, and you saw a bit of it in the dissents, uh, especially in the kind of Sonia and Katanji versus Clarence situation, was when they wrote the Constitution, it was written for white men. Um, so how to interpret, and this speaks to one of the questions we got from Teresa here, the Constitution, she's saying, is inherently racist. How are we supposed to implement equity when the Constitution itself wasn't meant for anyone but white folks? Mm, mm. I mean, that's a great question and a question that Americans have been wrestling with literally since the Constitution's inception, and we still wrestle with it today. Uh, and you can see the court strongly wrestling with it today. Even like the highest justices in America wrestle with how exactly are we meant to deal with this issue. Clarence Thomas's perspective is get over it. That is his perspective. So they, 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 that it. is, if you were to summarize Clarence's uh, concurring, it's get over it. Get over it. That's literally like he could have just written that. <laughs> get over it. And then in future opinions, he would quote himself. Uh, saying get over it because he like he does like to write his own decisions and he likes to quote himself uh, because you know like when he writes another decision down the road he quotes himself in his previous decision so get over it is his perspective 
um, that you're more than your race, uh, that if there's uh, bad things happening to a race statistically, um, then that's something the race is doing wrong and the people should just get over assuming their race as this their entire identity. Um, and of course, uh, the, the women in the minority uh, in this case, the women in the dissent, uh, strongly disagree with the idea that it should be incumbent upon any Americans to just get over the effects of many hundreds of years of enslavement and discrimination. Um, I know we touched upon this earlier, but we have gotten several more questions about legacy uh, mm -hmm. and, and whether that could come up here in future mm -hmm. lawsuits and how this decision could impact uh, universities considering whether your parents or grandparents or family members had gone to the same institution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. A lot of Americans feel real salty about legacy admissions. Uh, and I can understand that uh, because it, what legacy admissions do, meaning like, yeah, my grandpa went to this school. Uh, he was real great. You should let me in too because he went to this school. And his name's um, on the building. Uh-huh. He donated all that money. You should let me in because my parents went here. Um, and they have been sending in their $5,000 donations every year since my birth. You know what I mean? Like in a sense to uh, buy their own admission someday. Um, this doesn't touch legacy admissions. Legacy is not a category that's, uh, wealth is not a category that is considered by the Constitution. So you may see a potential towards uh, some universities moving away from that legacy status. But the bottom line is universities feel uh, compelled to consider legacy status because of the money. They need the money, right? They can't, if a, if a university admits an entire class of people who can't pay, um, that is, that puts them in a very precarious financial position. Now, you can make, again, a ton of different arguments about whether or not we, how we should pay for college in the United States, whether or not we should, uh, it should be free or all of those things. But the legacy thing is not touched by this decision. And I think it's likely to continue at least uh, in private universities uh, at, for the short term uh, because of the money issue. Um, President Biden spoke a couple hours afterwards. He gave a short speech and, and probably the most interesting thing uh, as he was walking away, as reporters do, they shout questions at him. And uh, a reporter shouted a question asking whether uh, this court is, is out of touch um, with America. Biden replied by saying, this is not a normal court. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and then, by the way, the reporter followed up by asking, should there be term limits? And he shut the door and didn't answer mm -hmm. that one. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess the, that leads to a larger question, which is how, um, how different is this court than previous courts? Uh, when Biden is saying this is not normal, obviously he has certain, his partisan viewpoint on it, given it's a 6-3 uh, uh, conservative court. Uh, but put, it, put this court into historical context for us um, in terms of especially the last couple of years, uh, the direction it's taking and how it's considering opinions and, and, and where does this fall within the the 250 years of the Supreme Court? Mm, mm. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, where it falls in the 250 years of the Supreme Court is certainly much better than when they were deciding Plessy versus Ferguson. Right. Like, way better than that, clearly. Wait, so so just remind folks, Plessy versus Ferguson was? It was a, 
a case in the end of the 19th century um, that basically upheld this idea of segregation. That, it, that segregation is fine um, as long as it's equal. Separate right? but equal. Separate but equal is acceptable. Uh, and then, of course, that was later overturned in the 1950s with Brown v. Ford, where they were like, separate by definition is not equal. So, yes, I mean, are they better than the court that decided Plessy? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Plessy is widely regarded as, like, perhaps one of the worst Supreme Court decisions that's ever been written. And, and that's agreed by everybody. I think even yeah, Thomas yeah, mentions absolutely. it. He's like, this is, like, totally embarrassing. Like, I can't believe that yeah. I work at an institution that once decided that. To totally, absolutely. Uh, you can also make the argument that it's better than the court that decided Korematsu, which is the case that made it legal for uh, the United States to round up Japanese Americans and imprison them in camps uh, around the country. And then when they sued, saying, like, you can't do this, we're, we're citizens. We've had no due process. We are not even accused of any crimes. Uh, and the Supreme Court said, you know what, it's national security and there's nothing we can do. There, you're going to have to live in the camp. Uh, so you can make the argument that it's better than the Korematsu, the court that decided Korematsu. Mm -hmm. um, better, of course, is subjective. And when I say better, I don't necessarily mean that they're making better decisions or uh, that I agree with all the decisions this court or that court is making. But for many years, post, like, post uh, the 1950s forward, you had a court that uh, tried as much as they were able to put together decisions that Americans could understand, rally around, impl and implement. Um, even cases, uh, again, I know a lot of people will disagree with this, uh, but Roe versus Wade, for example, was decided by an ideologically conservative majority courts. It was seven to two yes. with majority conservatives. Yes, that's right. Right. Uh, and so you can see that uh, how much the pendulum has swung since the early 1970s uh, in terms of how uh, justices are interpreting the Constitution. Um, so, again, there's a number of pendulum swings uh, throughout history, uh, and we are at one of the more far right leaning pendulum swings at, at this moment in time. Um, and somebody asked, by the way, you brought up Brown v. Board. Does this have any, any implications for Brown v. Board in any way, shape, or form? Mm. Brown v. Board uh, has, it, it doesn't say that, you know, like this, they do reference it in this decision, by the way. Um, of course, the justices uh, in the dissent are like, hello, we said in Brown v. Board that we needed that, it, that integrating schools was an incredibly important thing to ensure that everyone was receiving a free, uh, equitable education. And now we're essentially saying uh, that's not a goal anymore. So you see that referenced in the dissent, that people feel incensed that Brown v. Board is essentially, uh, you know, like they're messing with some of the principles that were found in it. Um, that said, Brown v. Board uh, primarily targets K-12 education. It, does, it did have a trickle-up effect into higher education, um, but we're talking about, um, you know, two sort of, it's kind of an apples to oranges comparison is what I'm trying to say. Um, somebody says, uh, Anne says, Sharon, we need recommendations on how we can read so dang fast like you do. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I don't, I don't have any recommendations. I don't, I don't have a special uh, like method or anything. I, it, this is just something I've been doing for like 20 years. So it's a little bit like if I was a civil engineer uh, and I read a manual of like, yep, here's how we're going to put together the bridge. I could, I could probably walk out and be like, the bridge is going to go together like this because I understand the principles of how bridges are made. Uh, that's sort of how I, how I liken this is being able to read things like this. It's just a base. It's just rests on education and practice. Um, so Friday we have student loans. Uh -huh. Um, a lot of people have been probably. asking about it. Probably. Well, I mean, do you think they're really going to kick? Decisions that until after no, the 4th I, of July? I, don't, I, mean, yeah. I don't. No, I don't. I think they will drop what they have tomorrow. Yes. But and I can't promise. I can't promise, but I do think they will. And then go and then go to summer camp together. Mm -hmm. they'll, then they'll their... sing Kumbaya uh, at uh, whatever uh, billionaire summer camp they all get invited to. Actually, that's a great segue. <laughs> There's been a lot of questions. People are like, wait, are these still the same group? Or are there some ethical questions, etc.? cetera? Uh, reset for us, I mean, because it came up in the Biden question about term limits. Mm -hmm. But then uh, Congress has been hotly discussing, certain members of Congress, uh, creating a code of ethics. Mm -hmm. What is the state of play there? Who needs to put forth a code of ethics? And what power does Congress have here uh, in the fallout of all the various headlines we've been getting in the past few months about what these justices are up to with their friends. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it just came out recently. I mean, a while ago it came out that Clarence Thomas had accepted uh, trips, et cetera, from one of his billionaire friends and that his billionaire friend had bought his mom's house, things of that nature. And it just recently came out um, that Samuel Alito had done something similar where he had accepted trips from a, from a billionaire, like a fishing trip. And so, so that has really reignited amongst certain groups this call for ethics reform of the Supreme Court. Neither Alito nor Thomas um, uh, disclosed any of those trips. They didn't disclose the financial aspect of it or the fact that they were going on these trips, especially when it came to Alito. The person he was with had 10 cases in front of the Supreme Court that he did not recuse himself from. So. One aspect that the people who want ethics reform are calling for is a, a recusal policy. Uh, and this, here's the thing, federal judges have a very strict code of ethics that they must follow, including a, a recusal policy that they must follow. Who, by the way, created that code of ethics for every federal judge except for the nine on the Supreme Court? Yeah, Congress, Congress. And they did so, an exception for the Supremes? Well, the didn't they just they, they didn't have a carve out of like except for the supreme courts but they the way the law was written it only applied to uh the justices in circuit courts district courts uh you know magistrate judges just the way that it was worded uh it made it so that it didn't apply to them so uh, a lot of people are saying why can't they abide by the same code of ethics as all other federal judges. Like this is not asking too much. It's being held to the same standard as everybody else is being. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds. I think there's almost 800, eight, somewhere around there, federal judges. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so why, if you're supposed to be at the tippity top of the federal judiciary, why aren't you held to the same standards as everyone below you? Like that is like what's good, you know, it's good for thee, but not for me. That's how it feels to a lot of people. 
Um, and the same is true when it comes to financial matters. Federal employees have a very strict $20 limit on any gifts that they are allowed to receive. If, and that even includes like going out to lunch. If I go out to lunch with you and I'm a federal employee um, and my lunch is over $20, I am legally not allowed to let you pay for it. So if you, I mean, unless you're eating at like McDonald's and you're getting something. I mean, given inflation these days, you're literally left with a, yeah, a number five, a number six. Yeah. You can barely eat at a Wendy's for under $20, right? And, but that amount has not changed. It's $20. So, um, some some people who are advocating for an ethics code are saying why can't we just apply these ethics rules that exist for all other federal employees and federal judges why can't we apply them to the supreme court as well um that they're not even inventing new things they're just applying it across the board so uh, i mean it, it's tbd it's congress that would have to enact these ethics reforms um, and the way that they would enforce them, in my estimation, is that they would create a Supreme Court or a judiciary watchdog group, much like uh, watchdog groups exist for things like the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, you saw the Epstein case that came out earlier, the Epstein report that came out earlier this week, where the watchdog group that oversees the Bureau of Prisons was like, here is everything that's wrong, that went wrong. Oh, Sharon, don't get us started <laughs> on Epstein. I don't know if you can read in the comments. We're done. We're done talking about Epstein. That's all I have to say. My only point was that other groups have watchdog organizations that oversee them to make sure that they're on the up and up, including the Bureau of Prisons. And some people are saying there should be one for the federal judiciary. And I mean, so far it's been left to the Supremes to police themselves. And mm -hmm. we've seen the headlines from that. And Roberts is basically like, thanks, no thanks. We're, we're good yeah. over here. Um, we, we can take care of ourselves. And so what, you know, do we have a sense, what are the prospects, I guess, given the Republican House, Democratic Senate? I mean, is there any sense, have you sensed any momentum towards bipartisan, like, mm -hmm. we need to do more here? Mm -hmm. I, 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 in my reading, I haven't seen that much. Mm -hmm. No, I haven't seen a lot of bipartisan movement to uh, try to come together on a code of ethics. I've seen mostly Democrats saying we, should, we need to have a code of ethics for the Supreme Court, um, in part because Thomas and Alito are, uh, you know, they're making the types of decisions that many uh, Republican members of Congress agree with, and they don't want to, you know, they don't see an, an issue, essentially. It's the Democrats who don't like Alito and Thomas, who are especially up in arms uh, about the fact that they're taking these billionaire trips, uh, and it's mostly them that are advocating for ethics reforms. All right, so that's where we're at. Uh, Friday, student loans. Uh, what's that issue? What are you going to be looking for tomorrow morning? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm interested in a case uh, involving the um, graphic designer and public accommodation law in Colorado, whether or not, uh, you know, essentially this, this is the Supreme Court deciding who's right supersede somebody else's, right? Whether it is the person who doesn't want to make wedding websites for same-sex couples, or whether it is the right of same-sex couples to be free from discrimination. Uh, that's, they're essentially weighing whose rights are, you know. So is this, is this just a First Amendment case, or are there other amendments that play a role here? Because it, it seems like the graphic designers is basically this as a free speech yeah. argument. Yeah, she is. She is saying that compel that to be to for, be forced to make a wedding website for a same-sex couple is the government compelling her speech? 
And that compelled speech is the ultimate violation of the First Amendment, is her argument. That if I force you most to swear an oath of allegiance against me, the president, or whatever, that that compelled speech is perhaps like the most egregious violation of your rights. That's what the graphic designer is arguing. That's compelled speech. Um, and of course, Colorado is arguing that uh, their desire uh, and need to ensure that their citizens are free from discrimination um, is, uh, is, is tantamount. There was so, a case a couple of years ago, also Colorado incidentally, related to a baker yeah. who didn't want to bake a cake for a same-sex couple. Why is it that this issue is back? Yeah, because it relates to compelled speech. It relate because again, she actually has not even opened the the wedding website business yet. She right, no one's not, requested a website. No, no, no. She has not. She's just planning on it. She's planning on it. Uh, and so the issue is not just public accommodation. It's about compelled speech. Um, I think it's highly likely that the Supreme Court will side with the graphic designer. Um, saying that compelled speech violates her First Amendment rights. That's what I think is highly likely to happen. And then, of course, student loans, which I mentioned earlier today that I had been asked about, and I bet you can relate to this, Moj. I've been asked about student loan forgiveness every single day since September of 2020. Well, <laughs> if, if we look at the numbers, Sharon, just let's run the numbers here. 40 million Americans are impacted by this. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's a big um, deal to a lot of Americans. Absolutely. And I think most of them follow us. That's probably yeah, true. Yeah. And they want, mo most of the people who are asking me about it are hoping for like a, they're hoping for what they perceive as good news, right? Like this would really help my family if a portion of my loans could be forgiven. That's yeah. where I think why most people are asking me about it. And they really just like, please let it work out. You know what I mean? I think that's the, that's, that's mostly who's asking me. Uh, but there's certainly a subsection of people who are like, why should I pay for that? Why should I pay for your student loan? Um, I paid mine off or I didn't go to college. I don't want to pay for your student loan. So what do you think is going to happen? I, I would be, it would be quite a surprise if they uphold this. Mm -hmm. um, and I, frankly, I'll admit, I haven't read every line of the HEROES Act in Congress, mm -hmm. which Biden used uh, as his precedent here to say, I can, based on this 2003 act related to, Iraq war veterans, I can yep. also during a different national emergency, COVID, do the same thing. Yes. I feel like if I am most of the conservative justices, I believe that is a stretch interpreting yep. the law in that way. That was not the congressional intention. That said, the, some of the Voting Rights Act uh, uh, decisions have, have been, there have been some surprises sure. this term. Yeah. I, 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 I hate to say it to the people who are really hoping for, you know, their, you know, uh, to see it, their part of their loans go away. I think the court rules against Biden. Mm -hmm. That's my mm -hmm. prediction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that's also how I feel. Um, I will be, uh, of course, I'm willing to be wrong and will admit if I'm wrong, because um, I obviously don't have a crystal ball. But I, I think it is like I'm trying to. I've been trying to game the scenarios of like. On what basis would they rule in favor of student loan forgiveness? Like trying to figure out what would, if they were going to do it, what would the argument be? And the only argument that I can come up with at this juncture uh, has to do with the executive branch's ability, broad ability to enforce laws. 
Um, and you, you just saw a case related to this uh, recently where, um, you know, uh, immigration. Yeah, states tried to sue about the way Biden was enforcing immigration laws and they got swatted down and they were like the executive branch has always had broad latitude to enforce the laws. So that as I've like messed around with the scenarios in my mind, that's the only one I can come up with uh, that in which they uh, could uphold this scheme. And scheme is a legal term. Don't try to be, don't DM me. Scheme is an actual legal term. It's a structure, like a plan for something. Um, but my educated opinion is that they won't go for it. Yeah, because at the same time, you know, we're talking Supreme Court here with Sharon. At the same time that they did rule in favor of Biden enforcing those laws, we have seen them rule against the EPA and some- That's right. Some, you know, there have been a number of cases where they've said, government, you need to get very specific yep. authorization from Congress yes. to do this. Yes, the um, major questions doctrine of like, this seems like a major question that Congress needs to weigh in on. One thing I think that Patty Ferry, uh, one of the commenters brought up was standing. And that's, that's an issue, a question as to whether the states that are suing here on uh, the loan issue uh, have been, you know, uh, damaged in some way that they've been, um, yeah. you know, that, that they have standing to bring this case even yeah. to the Supreme Court. They have an yeah. argument. Yeah. Um, so one of the biggest, uh, you know, arguments that can be made about this is the state of Missouri and its role in collecting student loans. Uh, they have a whole, they have a whole like subsidiary, like a money making organization um, that is the is a federal government loan servicer and uh, a lot of people might be familiar with it it's called like mohila or mohela how i don't know how they pronounce it like m-o-h-e-l-a um and missouri of course is like this is going to directly impact us we are going to be very impacted by student loan forgiveness it's going to impact us financially because our budgets are written based on our income for federal loan servicing. So that's one that I think has more teeth of like, that makes sense that that would be, a, a, you know, like a, a, a state that would have a, what the court would re regard as a legitimate grievance with student loans. Other states are saying, um, I think making a weaker legal argument that like our citizens are negatively impacted when you forgive other people's loans. I think that's a, that's a that's way more of a stretch got it all right so they, it, we'll we'll look for them to address um standing we're coming up on the hour here and as you know we both have to we have to abide by some instagram <laughs> one hour time limits these days. um just to follow up on the website real briefly uh how did it get to the supreme court if she hasn't made a website yet people are people are confused on the um on the Colorado graphic designer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, she filed a lawsuit. The, the way it got there is because she filed a lawsuit. She filed a lawsuit saying, I am not able to run my business the way I want to because the government will compel my speech. And so consequently, my business is being negatively impacted. I can't expand my business. So you can bring a hypothetical to the Supreme Court. Sometimes, yes. Most of the time, no. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't say this is a hypothetical because she is saying that she is directly impacted. Her business's ability to expand is directly impacted. But so, sometimes you have to prove actual. I mean, you always have to prove actual injury. And she's saying this is actually injuring me because I am not able to expand the way that I want to. 
Sharon, it's always a pleasure talking to you on these Likewise. days. Thank Likewise. you for uh, your download on all these things. On affirmative action, any resources for people to read deeper on uh, in terms of things that you've put together mm. or places you would tell people to go who, who want to know more about that issue? I mean, there's, if you want to, I think it's very interesting to read the actual Supreme Court opinion. If you go to supremecourt.gov, uh, it's right there on the front page. And there's, yes, it's dense. Nobody saying you need to read every citation, but it really does give you a very good overview of how the issues are framed. And there's a lot of historical context in the opinion. It, it covers the entirety of American history uh, and, and speaks to large discussions, you know, mm -hmm. and these people are not just pulling... Well, they're accusing each other of yes. things out of thin air, but <laughs> they would argue that they're not. Uh -huh. Sharon, thank you. Uh, thank and you. Uh, we'll stay close. Good to see Talk you. Talk to you. All right, bye. bye. I want to thank Sharon McMahon again for that great conversation, very informative, helping to answer many of your questions about this case and the Supreme Court. You can check her out over on her Instagram page, Sharon Says So, at Sharon Says So. Before we go here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to episodes, extra content on our members-only podcast and members-only Instagram account. It's a place where we're answering your questions several times a week. And by joining Mo News Premium, more importantly, you're supporting our work here, uh, our plans to continue to do what we do, grow what we do, and supporting independent journalism. Please check that out over at mo.news slash premium. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you soon.